Um, let's pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, for this day, for uh, the great exchange, for your redemption of us, for all that we have, which we do not deserve, um, uh, for what you took on uh, in order to give us um, life itself. We give you thanks. Come now, be present, living and active. Um, speak your word and allow it to do its work. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good to see everybody. Uh, turn on my notes here. Um, so the series, looking at very short, it's last week and this week, so this is the end of it. Um, the Great Exchange, what do we mean by that? What's the Great Exchange? It's, uh, it's not my phrase, it's kind of what's out there, it's known. Sometimes it's the joyous exchange, the happy exchange, the great exchange. This idea that uh, God takes what is ours and he gives us what is his. There's an exchange. It's what we mean in the word redemption. I was thinking about that just a few minutes ago in church. Mark's really, really good sermon. It's going to occupy me for the week, if not much longer than that. Um, when we talk about redemption, even in common language, we talk about redeeming a coupon, hey, sir. Um, redeeming a note. Uh, uh, we exchange it. We exchange a coupon for some other service or something else like that. And that's the metaphor. It's, uh, it's the metaphor from, from the market. Um, uh, a slave is redeemed, meaning they're purchased. It gets really kind of raw because that's what the Lord did for us. He redeemed us from the slavery to, to sin, death, the devil, the world, whatever else. He exchanged something for something else. And so just planning that out there. Anytime you read the word redemption, you can think, like in the scripture, you can think exchangeion. Um, we've been exchanged. So the Lord was crucified and handed over for our exchange uh, and raised for our justification. Um, for instance, out of... Out of uh, Romans 4.25. And to continue that, we talked about the shalom last week, just kind of tying over where this shalom is not just the absence of conflict, peace is what the word means, which we often think of as just means that uh, now things, there's no more fighting. It's a lot more than that. It's this this state, this whole thing of, of being, the whole state of being as if it were before the fall. So Isaiah's great picture of Shalom, for instance, which we'll start hearing about in the season of Advent, the coming, uh, where the, the lion shall lay down with the lamb, where there's this place where uh, all things are simply, are simply, are simply are, and they just exist, and they exist well, and there is no need. There's no hunger, there's no thirst, there's no darkness, there simply is the eternal now, as C.S. Lewis called it, satisfaction. There simply is, in that eternal now, uh, existence. And it's good. And it was very good, as the Lord said, at the end of the sixth day of creation. And he looked out and he rested. And so that shalom, that peace that comes after the exchange or the redemption, for the, this is all just intro, um, and so the Lord Jesus Christ was handed over for our sins and raised for our justification. Therefore, we now have peace with God. Um, I also like to throw these words out just as we hear them in our liturgy, something like that. The peace of the Lord be always with you. What does that mean? It means now that there's been an exchange, now that everything that I'm not, I've been, he has taken. Uh, everything that I am, he has taken. My sin. 
and now everything that I'm not, righteousness, shalom, uh, acceptability, I once who was far off have been brought near. I once who didn't know mercy, now have received mercy. And I receive all that. Well, then I have peace with God. Well, now I'm in a relationship. Now I'm in a state. Now I'm in shalom. Now I'm in a place where I can breathe, where I can rest. I can be reconciled to God and to one another. And I can actually just, I can get up <laughs> one more day and I can, I can go about my business uh, of work, of, uh, of tending to the family, of of, uh, of, uh, of encountering the day on the day's terms and actually think, you know, this is what we call vocation. I'm being called into this. This is, this is life and it's good and it's okay. So that's all just the way to sort of begin. What is this exchange? My sin for his righteousness. Um, my rags for his new clothes. My, um, uh, uh, my disease for his health. My poverty for his riches. My um, uh, my my rack shambled house for his mansion. Um, there's lots of ways. Almost you can almost make this. Almost make this. It's called the meta narrative of the scripture. The big picture of the scripture. We say if if, we, if you have to boil it down, what is the Bible trying to say? It's pretty close. I'm not gonna say it's the one, but it's pretty close to nearly every page as a way of reading the entire Bible. This great exchange. So what's my purpose today? Um, somewhat audacious as I was thinking about it this morning. I'm a, I hope to woo you a little bit. Um, uh, just to luxuriate in a few of these scriptures. Um, to, uh, to bounce around just a little bit. And tie some of the Old Testament to the New. Um, last week we stayed in the Old Testament. Um, this week we're going to try to make this bridge to make sense. It's, it's key for us. Uh, as believers to say, well, how do we make sense of passages like Job or Genesis 19, um, 19, no, 22, uh, 22, uh, the sacrifice of, of Isaac, we looked at that last week, or 32, um, the uh, 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 Jacob wrestling the angel. How do we make sense of stories like that? Where do we see them, the promises that were made uh, the prophecies that were given, that which is foretold in the Old Testament. How do we see that being now fulfilled in the New Testament, um, which describes the life, death, resurrection, and then the life of the disciples, the followers of Christ? So that's what we're doing today. Um, I'm going to try to woo you a little bit the Scripture to, uh, to stir us uh, to um, grapple with this great promise, because if this word is true, and, it, and that which is spoken actually happens, well, then something might happen. Does that make sense? Questions? That's all just kind of intro. And then we're going to listen to a song by Tom Waits. That's where we're headed, called Down There by the Train. Thoughts? Well, let's roll. Uh, so probably the classic text, 2 Corinthians 5, um, 21, but just to back up a hair. So we're in 2 Corinthians. Do you want Bibles? Small enough. Do you want you want me to get those out? Do you want to flip around? They're in there. So I, okay, let's get them. I'm, I got the scriptures and I can just read. But thanks, Stratton. There should be a milk crate in there. Yep. Stratton's doing that. Let me just read Second Corinthians five, um, verses fourteen and following. Paul does this a lot. He's trying in the context here to. Uh, 
to actually talk about behavior in a certain sense. What is what do the works of love look like? How does a Christian live? What do a, if the world looked at a Christian as a Christ follower, as a believer, whatever you want to call it, how would they know anything? You know, I want to know what love is. You know, it's sort of the great question. One of the great questions from the 80s. Nobody left. Um, uh, he's trying to do that, but he can't go there without going to another place. Um, and so it starts off in Second Corinthians 5.14. He's talking about the love of Christ. And he says, for the love of Christ controls us. So even there, here's this idea of the rudder, uh, the keelboard, the thing which sets us on a, on a course, uh, the steering wheel, the orienting star. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. And now we hear. You can't just go and say, so now do what you know you're supposed to do. That's not enough fuel. There's no motivation there. The thing which is commanded does not simply happen. Something else has to happen first. The exchange. So for the, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded thus, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. A lot of baptism there, which we just saw this morning. And he died for all, that those who might live... Uh, those who live might no longer I'm sorry let me start over for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised from now on therefore we regard no one according to the flesh even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh we regard him thus no longer therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Jesus, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Justly famous phrase. Um, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ didn't only take on our sins. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, sin itself, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The very nature of who he was, who he is, he gives us in our very nature, our original righteousness, which is very far gone, the 39 articles say, uh, which is very far gone. Christ takes that upon himself. So I think of this story that we used to read every Easter, um, when I was the youth minister, I don't think you ever did this. Um, I think you were too young. I wonder if you did. We used to go to, in fact, Randy and Rosemary Hams. Um, probably for 10 years, I woke up uh, on their floor on Easter morning um, because we would take the youth group, senior high, whoever wanted to come. We'd get together uh, Saturday before Easter, and we'd go out to their place and, uh, and spend the night there and wake up really early. Uh, like 5 a.m. And, and go and usually it's really cold and sit out on their front stoop and have a little sort of Easter morning devotional. And what we would do is I'd read most of the time, maybe every time, a story called Ragman. Just a very simple but good parable. Do you know it? Um, 
by a guy named Walter Wingate. I'm sure you can find it online. I didn't print it. I should have brought it. Uh, very simple. The Great Exchange is what it's all about, where this man walks around who is a vibrant stranger. Kind of maybe embellishing here a little bit. It's been a long time since I've read it. And he's walking through the town, this stranger, this man full of life, just screaming, rags, rags, new rags for old. And so he sets that up. It's really short, probably four or five pages. Uh, and he encounters three people, if I remember right. One old drunk, um, broken in spirit. Uh, and so he'd go up to the drunk, and he took his, uh, the drunk's shoes, perhaps. And he, um, and, he, and he takes the drunk's shoes, and he puts on his feet, his shoes. And the drunk becomes sober and is given life, and he walks now with purpose and step. And the ragman, who was going around rags, rags, new rags for old, begins to take on the character of the drunk. And now he stumbles a little bit, and he slurs his words, and he encounters this other woman, a grieving woman, broken in spirit. And he takes the woman's uh, blanket, for instance, um, and, uh, and exchanges that for a, a clean blanket and gives her strength and peace. And she walks away. Now, with no longer, no more tears, and no more brokenness, and she walks away strong and confident. But the ragman, a change is coming over him, and you can see it. Now he's got the drunk shoes and this this woman's uh, uh, blanket around him, her cape, and now he's 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 stumbling, he's slurring, and he's stooped over, and he no longer has that strength. Uh, and he encounters a, a war veteran, a man with one arm. Rags, rags, new rags for old. The ragman, now broken, now slurring, uh, manages to get out. And he goes up to this other man. He's crying by this point. And he goes up to the man with one arm. And he takes off his jacket. Um, and he exchanges the man's jacket for his. And now the man has two arms, vibrant and strong. But the ragman, if you look at him now, bent and hunched and crying and stumbling with only one arm. He stumbles along, and obviously he stumbles to his death, and then he finds a resurrection. Um, now, the new has come, and the old has gone. For the one who knew no sin, who knew no brokenness, no sorrow, was made to be broken, was made to be sorrowful, took on everything from these others and exchanged it for something new. And that's Paul's word. A simple parable, but it's spot on. Um, Ragman is what it's called. It's worth Googling. You could find it, I'm sure, by a guy named Walter Wingarin, or Wingarin. So we go from there to where we were last week, Hosea. This incredible story, parable, as it were, um, of, uh, of Hosea, which uh, has the same root of Jesus or Joshua, the one who saves. And so through, the, uh, through this, this story of Hosea, God's magnificent, magnificent salvation is seen where the word to Hosea is to go and marry Gomer, a woman of whoredom, and take for, uh, uh, for himself a wife of whoredom, as it kept saying in that very abrasive word. Uh, and then Gomer bore three children, probably only one of which was actually Hosea's, but the others were uh, Hosea still had to, to work with. Um, one called No Mercy, one called uh, uh, Not My People. And he goes through, and we hear the exchange, um, especially from that parable, say, over to Ephesians 5, the great um, and sometimes contentious, because it's not understood in this context, the contentious passage about wives and husbands. And so we read this, for instance, from Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, and think the command from Hosea to Gomer, 
Hosea, I want you to love that woman, Gomer, who is unlovable, more than that, who is actively in rebellion, a woman of whoredom. I want you to take for her as I want you to take her as your wife. Now he's going to say, This is what I do for you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, his bride, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So this word, rags, rags, new rags for old, the exchange, redemption, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and I will take yours, it says, you could say in parentheses, for my yoke is, uh, is easy and its burden is light. Give me your yoke, this abrasive yoke, which is so hard, such a struggle. Let me bear that for you. Husbands, actually, in this like real life relationship that most of us are in, uh, but also hearing it as God speaking to the bridegroom Christ. And now the promise is being given that he is wed to us, the gomers that we are, the people of whoredom, the people whose, idol, whose hearts are idol factories and will go off in a moment's notice to something that seems bright and shiny uh, and, uh, and distracting and forget the God of our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he speaks as Christ loves the church, that's us, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and wash her uh, and cleanse her with the washing of water in the word. The sanctifying language is temple language, that something is now set apart, an instrument for God's purpose and use. So the bowl that was used, for instance, for, to, uh, to collect the blood in the temple was sanctified, was set apart. It was made holy. Not didn't have a quality that this was now somehow with a halo over it. It was just like, this is what it's for. It is now holy and set apart and it is mine. And I have cleansed it. I have made it clean for the purpose for which it has been purposed. And so now that's us, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with water with the word, part of baptism, that he might present the church to himself. God crowns his own gifts. He brings the church back to himself. Uh, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Remember my promise, my hope, not a promise, my hope to woo you with the promises of God, that we might hear this and think, that's him. That's him. He's doing that for me, not to me, for me, washing me, cleansing me, setting me apart. Why? So that I may come to him, the bridegroom, the one who screams, rags, rags, new rags for old, and I might come back to him how, in what quality of body, mind, and spirit, a quality without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing, that I might be holy, set apart for the purpose for which I am purposed, and without blemish. And then Peter, great Peter, remember who Peter is? You know, I, I, I tell you, Lord, I will never, I will never betray you. Oh, Peter. Peter, 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 I tell you the truth. All that, all that Peter is. And then he wrote the changed Peter. First Peter. It's worth our attention. And Peter now picks up the same sort of Homer, Homer, Hosea, Gomer language. Homer. Um, Hosea, Gomer language. Um, uh, he's hearing Paul. Uh, this idea of being washed 
uh, of being made holy, of being sanctified and set apart for a purpose for which it's purposed. And Peter says this, words that you know, but remember, I'm just trying to woo you. I'm trying to woo me with the words of the promise. But you are, not you will be, you will be, you will one day, one day be. I'm really having trouble speaking today. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy, set apart for a purpose for which it has been purposed, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. That's directly out of Hosea. Um, remember the child's name was not my people. That's not mine. You once were far off, not my person. You once were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. That was the other child, no mercy. But now you have received mercy. So the great exchange, this redemption. You can also think of Exodus 12 and the great Passover. What a shame that we call it Easter. Um, you know, most languages keep the word Paschal in there, like the Pascua de la Resurrección in Spanish, for instance, um, uh, which means the Passover or the resurrection. We keep the direct tie. Easter is the Passover feast, is the Passover celebration from Christ's blood, because there will be blood. This great half verse from Exodus 12, sometimes I read the scripture and something just lifts out. That was what this week was, this single verse. I mean, it's just... It's hauntingly beautiful. Was it Flannery O'Connor said the South is a Christ-haunted landscape? This has a Christ haunt all over it. This is the word, the word of the Lord, being spoken to Moses before the Passover, before you know the, the plagues on Egypt. The last was the Passover that I'm going to come and kill the firstborn of everything in Egypt, the firstborn of the cattle, the firstborn of uh, of any families. But for you, before I send the angel of death, I want you to be spared. And how will you do that? There will be blood. Just like there was in Genesis 3 we talked about last week where the Lord had compassion, passio, suffering, on, uh, on Adam and Eve and their sort of juvenile effort to cover themselves with fig leaves. And the Lord covered them with skins. And so he broke his own shalom and he killed. There will be blood. Even there, way back then, there will be blood, which of course now prefigures the cross. Well, Passover, Easter, certainly does. And he says, take blood and smear it on your doorpost. Smear it on the wood, on the lentils and the doorpost of your doors. And then where there's blood, I will pass over you and you will not die. And so he says this, this half verse out of Exodus 12, 13, if you're in your, in your book, um, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And when I see the blood, you will not die. Remember what the, uh, the uh, death is the legislative effect of a broken law. You shall not eat of the tree, for on the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And now he's saying, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and you will not die. And now there's been blood, not smeared on the doorpost, but now on the cross, on the tree. The tree that was meant for death has now become the tree of life. 
Um, and we hear this in Galatians 3.13. This is how Paul makes sense of this part of the Passover. Just one way. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So again, that which he was not, he now is. Was made to be sin. Rags, rags, new rags for old. And the drunkenness and the brokenness and the, the, the one arbenness that he wasn't, he now is. Christ redeemed us, exchanged us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hang, is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This objective event of the atonement of Christ, the atonement of Christ, that we are made at one, that we are reconciled. Um, I implore you, be reconciled to God. Hear the promise. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Uh, be washed, be washed, sanctified, and made holy in the blood of the Lamb. Um, uh, for I made him who knew no sin to be sin. The one who knew no curse was made to be a curse. Why? For us. This is the basis, an objective, not a subjective, an objective event in history where God broke through, was made flesh, lived as a man, died, and now has been risen, and now has, has rose for our salvation. All of this, um, I know I'm flying, I'm trying to get to Tom Waits, here, Isaiah 53, for instance, and then going back to 1 Peter. Um, these words from Isaiah 53, which we hear on Good Friday, he had no think, think the ragman. Um, now, once was strong, but has been made weak. Uh, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Shalom. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There is no stronger place in the Old Testament which describes the gospel, which describes the, the exchange. It's hard to even count how many times it says on him and then for us. All the different ways that happens. And Peter picks this up again in chapter 2, verses 22 following. And he committed, and Christ committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So with all that, um, set this up. Uh, Fitz Allison, who's coming in two weeks, by the way. Um, he'll preach uh, on the 20th. He's going to be in town for a wedding we asked him to preach. He was a hero to many of us. Um, he wrote this book, The Cruelty of Heresy. Um, some of you all probably read it. It's worth it. Um, it goes back to the early church and the heresies from the early church. He said this. This is about a heresy called Nestorianism, uh, Nestorianism which I'm not going to get into, but just this image of a train. Um, there's all sorts of heresies where you can think of the train coming through 
uh, well, there's a train that's blowing through the train station, except it comes through full speed and it doesn't stop. Um, for those who can align their wills with God, you might have a chance to hop on, to get on the train. God's got a way to go. Um, uh, for those of you who can do that, uh, this train is bound for glory. Hop on. God helps those who help themselves. Semi-Pelagian or outright Pelagian heresy. Uh, well, he's going to have a different word. That God, with all this great exchange, that the train stops for sinners. <laughs> and that in his body, he bore the curse. And Fitzsimmons Allison has a great way of thinking and tying those two things together from a train to, of all things, denatured alcohol. And then we're going to read that and then we're going to listen to Tom Waits and have a minute or two to, to listen. So this train stops for sinners. So um, this train comes through this, uh, another train might come through a station and not stop, um, but you can hop on if your, your will is right. Uh, this insistence on humanity tells us that it is the right station and the train does not come and the train does come through but only at full speed. It's one connection with us is the example that the human Jesus ran fast enough to catch the divine word and so should we. So again, if Christ is only our example, that's not much atonement. There's not much hope for us. Uh, if we catch the train of salvation, we can catch the train of salvation as long as we have made our wills the will of Jesus and his will with the Father's will. What separates the Orthodox from this heresy are such scriptural texts as, by his wounds we have been healed. We just read in Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter 2. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5. Somehow, Christ's saving accessibility to sinners must be preserved for us to get on board. In Christ, God's train stops at our own town, even if its very name is sin. In this context, we can imagine a rough analogy that may help us to understand the mystery of how sinful nature is redeemed by the suffering of Christ on the cross. Boatmen, in other words, people that are in boats, use a trick to solve a very difficult problem that water causes when it gets into the gas tank and fouls the motor. I wouldn't recommend this, by the way, but it's pretty good. Going through the carburetor into the cylinder, water prevents spark plugs from firing and the engine stops. All is not lost, however. If one has a couple of cans of denatured alcohol on board, alcohol is the property that gasoline lacks. It will mix with water, and it will burn. So pouring alcohol, which absorbs water, into the tank and cranking the engine enough will get the alcohol sucked into the spark plug chamber. It'll start the motor and move the water from the gas tank. As alcohol absorbs water and burns in the motor, so Christ's humanity absorbs sin and burns it on the cross. Divinity cannot absorb sin any more than gasoline can absorb water. For sin to be absorbed and destroyed, it required a humanity that can carry it. For our sake, he made him to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So I thought that was an effective way to think about that. And here's the song, which we'll end on. It's about five minutes. I think I played this once years ago. If you remember that, you're better, you're better than I am. Um, Tom Waits, uh, who I don't know much about. I think Max Stokes told me about this song. Um, Johnny Cash covered it uh, on his like American album. Uh, but I still like Tom Waits's word, his the, the way he sings it better. It's a uh, it's striking because in, in Fitz's language of this train will stop even if even if the name of the town is sin. 
what this does, it, it helps us to really confront the startlingly uncompromising quality of the universality of grace. That grace, God's stooping to unlovely, unlovable, sin-ridden people, people who are broken, who have one arm, who are hungry, who are drunk, who are, uh, who are grieving, who have need. That God stoops. He comes down. The condescension of God, emptying himself, lowering himself from the heights of heaven, coming down into the depths of our depravity. And like denatured alcohol, his divinity could not come close to that. But as humanity could, and in a mystery that we cannot understand, the, 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 the Christ Jesus, fully God, yet fully man, very God of very God, begotten, not made, one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, he yet also in his body bore our sins. His humanity united itself to our sinfulness so that we might have redemption. And this uh, Tom Waits, being a prophet, um, I don't know much about him, but clearly he's a prophet. He gets it. What does it confront? This universality of grace. Does that mean we have to become universalist? That everybody's going to make it? I don't think it does. Uh, what it does do is force us to confront, if this is really true, because he goes through these cast of characters, people like Judas and John Wilkes Booth and... Uh, uh, and whores and liars and cheats. He's really gravelly. Um, how far are we willing to go to think that, uh, that God's grace will extend? Um, even to these people, we'd rather not be around. Um, doesn't mean we have to become universalists. I do think it means we need to confront truly the universality of, of grace. So with that, you can do this. Probably have a minute to talk or something. Any thoughts? You might know this song. Um,
call it a pretty song. <laughs> it's a good one. I almost wonder if he read Fitz's book, because I think the book came out before that, but I'm sure he didn't. Um, thought or two? Got maybe a minute. The uncompromising, startling reality of the grace of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, for that grace, we give you humble thanks and ask that you would, in fact, turn us, Lord, um, uh, turn our hearts to you so that we may uh, uh, love you as we are loved by you. Um, Help us, Lord, in our needs. Uh, They are great, but your mercy and your grace is always greater. Provide, um, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.